<laughs> but welcome to the last We Need to Talk panel discussion of the year. I'm Melinda, and I am the worship leader here at Harmony Toluca Lake and also the creator and founder of We Need to Talk. Um, I started this last year with different topics, and thank you so much, Pastor Mark and Harmony, for allowing me to host these here. And I'm joined by my co-hosts and my partner in crime, Carmel Humphrey. Hello, how are you doing? Thanks for having Formal panelist, but also my co-host for the podcast, We Need to Talk. So today we are talking about a very important topic, the criminal justice system. And on our panel today, we have Michelle Infante. She's part of Dignity and Power Now. We have Christina Lear, part of Reform LA Jails. Latoya Lynn Blakely, who is a criminal defense attorney. And Maria Casillas, who is the leadership fellow with Initiate Justice. So please welcome our panel. Um, so how this will work, uh, we're just going to have a discussion with you guys, a few questions that we want to ask, and then we're going to open up the floor to anyone that has any questions that they would like to ask the panel as well. So uh, we'll just start off with this. Uh, with the, as you guys know, um, if you do not know, the U.S. has the largest criminal justice system probably in the world, I would say. And uh, a, a staggering statistic that I found recently is that one out of 10 black men in their 30s is in prison or in jail on any given day in our country. And black Americans are more likely to serve longer sentences than white Americans for the same offense, despite long-term declines, and despite de long-term declines in youth incarceration, African-American youth are five times as likely as white youth to be detained or committed into youth facilities in this country. So the first question I wanna ask, and you can jump in with ever, any question that you feel that you wanna answer. Um, many people are in denial that race plays a huge role in the criminal justice system, but we've all seen that it does. So my first question for you is, in the work that you guys do personally with the organizations that you work with, how have you personally seen racial disparities within the criminal justice system? Okay, I'll jump in. Um, as feel free to tell a little bit about what you do as well. Okay. As Melinda mentioned, I am a criminal defense attorney, but based out of Dallas, Texas. So my experiences are based on what I've seen in my practice there. I've been licensed almost eight years. I've been practicing almost eight years. And so while there is no dispute in my mind that the criminal justice system is biased based on race, I think that one of the more important things and kind of a foundational issue is that it's really biased based on socioeconomic status. I believe that poor neighborhoods are po policed at a much higher rate than um, non-poor neighborhoods. And it just so happens to be that minorities make up the bulk of poor neighborhoods. So when you have police who are actively involved and engaged in poor neighborhoods that are made up of majority black and brown people, then it's no surprise that it's black and brown people who are ending up in jail, in handcuffs, with charges. Mm -hmm. And then once we move past that, I mean, we see it every day in the media that black people and brown people are sentenced differently than white people for the same crime, so. Michelle? I personally was, I spent six months inside the county jail in Linwood, and I was sexually assaulted by a deputy and medical staff when I was in there. And so with the six months that I spent inside, I saw with my eyes, most definitely, that black and brown folk are most affected by um, the judicial system. And for the last five years, I've been working uh, transformative justice and healing justice with dignity and power now. And I can tell you, again, from my, my work and personal experience, 
that black and brown folk are most definitely affected. And I see that coming through by having started a support group uh, for families who are directly and indirectly impacted by incarceration. And my class, uh, my support group is, it has uh, black and brown folk. It's made up of black and brown folk around uh, the county of Los Angeles. So um, when I speak, I speak from experience. Hi, everyone. So um, I work with Initiate Justice. I'm the leadership fellow there. And we focus on policy reform on how to make better uh, laws for mass incarceration reform. Um, I believe that this truly goes back to slavery times. Um, during the Jim Crow era, we basically are seeing what's called a transition into a modern, gym, the new uh, Jim Crow era because we're still seeing a lot of individuals of color um, in our communities not being able to vote, not being able to get um, you know, careers, jobs, where we should be able to if the criminal system says that we are no longer a threat to society. I say we because I was formerly incarcerated myself. And one of the things that I'll never forget is um, when I was leaving the county jail in a very conservative uh, county, which is Santa Barbara County, um, one of the officers told me, um, I'll see you next week. And I looked at him like, what? You know, this is my first time going into a county jail. I didn't know what I was expecting. And when I was going home, here I am trying to figure out how I'm going to get back on my feet. And I have a an, uh, correctional officer told me, telling me, I'll see you next week because you guys always come back. You are a paycheck to me. Because of you, I feed my children. So instead of uh, taking that criticism negatively, I am now here speaking for all those that are in there unable to speak for themselves and um, trying to make things better for people that have suffered like us. Next question. In politics, what is something within the criminal justice reform that we should be asking potential candidates to consider? Oh, I can answer that <laughs> right off the bat. One of the questions is, are they willing to go after uh, deputies and um, the police uh, and uh, criminally prosecute them? I think that's a major, major issue because if we don't prosecute those that commit cr criminal acts, just like the rest of us in society, right, um, then uh, where's the accountability and the transparency in what's going on? And I mean, we have rules that society has to abide by, and I don't think that there should be a double standard, obviously, for anyone that wears a uniform and a badge and carries a gun. Christina? Yeah, I think in support, uh, um, my name's Christina. I'm an organizer with White People for Black Lives, which is a local chapter of showing up for racial justice. We, uh, and we work to organize white people into anti-racist action. Um, and uh, I, I just, to what Michelle was saying, I think a lot of times when people think about what we should ask politicians for, we think about like the big label politicians and that a lot of what we need to talk about are the really local level um, and where a lot of that prosecution happens and the shakedown from it, um, so. How do you think that people can actually bring about change within a system? For example, like 
police officers and law enforcement, they're not voted for. So how can they, how do you think we can bring about change with something like that when, when there's officers that are just appointed in that sense and we don't really have a say in who is being put into law enforcement? How is that something that we can change? I have to quickly jump on this. Yeah. Uh, because please. I don't think that the, I don't think that just because you get to vote means that the best person ends up in the job. Sure. And we can look at so many elected officials around us. Um, like I said, I practice in Dallas County. I go to court often and I look at judges who do not deserve to be on the bench, who should not be on the bench, but because they run good campaigns and they have good PR and strategy, they get elected. And the community at large thinks that they are amazing. But being that I'm in that courtroom, I'm representing clients and I see what happens, I know firsthand that they should not be on the bench. And so I, I just think that with all things, people should be qualified. Mm -hmm. um, with all things, people slip through cracks. And so I think that in hiring, you try to hire the right people. But once you find out they're not the right people, I think that action needs to be taken and it needs to be taken quickly. Um, and, and like Michelle said, I think that everyone should be held to the same standards, regardless of whether or not you wear a badge, regardless of whether or not what your title may be or what you look like. If we have a set of standards, they need to be applied equally amongst everyone. Uh, I agree. I agree with you. Um, and also, like, if you take a look at careers, um, if you want to become a doctor, you got to go to school for so many years. If you want to be a lawyer, you got to go to school for so many years. But a police officer, for example, only goes to training for a maximum of, like, I believe it's six months to a year of certain um training and workforce so as far as being elected i totally agree um voting is not going to give us people with dignity and humanity and um, empathy um just like when you go to a hospital you get a mean nurse or you get a doctor that doesn't care i believe that um it's the same thing in, in the workforce of law enforcement um they should all be held accountable equally and um, not have any type of um, privileges just because they wear a, va a badge. What do you think the primary function of law enforcement is supposed to be? And it says law enforcement, but I think that they've kind of misinterpreted their mandate a little bit recently, at least that we've seen. So I'm curious to know your thoughts of what you actually think their job is supposed to be. Protecting. <laughs> <laughs> serve and protect. Um, uh, I feel like the abuse that's put out there is due to um, power empowerment issues. Um, if they're starting, if they begin to get hold accountable, then they're going to think twice about how they treat the people. If the people starts to stand up and doing um, rightful, you know, like. Um, rightful um, filing, like, you know, court matters against them, filing charges against them without having the fear of they're going to come after me or they're going to come after my family or they are more powerful than we are because they have a badge. Um, they should be starting to get held accountable for all the unrightful treatment that they do to humanity because humanity doesn't have a color. But unfortunately, um, we were raised that way. We were born into a society that the color, there's division in color. And unfortunately, we were born in that. 
in that state of mind, in that stigma. So now our goal is to remove that and help people see that there is no uh, division in color. And if it's going to take for law enforcement to get held accountable for it, then we need to start doing that. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, something that the work of like Dignity and Power Now and Initiate Justice and Justice LA and has really helped us to recognize is that a lot of the work that needs to be done isn't just in making accountable the 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 police officers and the legal system, but it's about investing in a community that takes care of people that is independent of that system. And that if we don't actually create that and invest in it, all of us, that you know, we now have this society that deals with everything through a system that w wasn't really created to protect and serve, it was created to, to separate it was you know it's it was created with the idea that there's a population that needs to be controlled right. Right. and so you know the 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 work of re of, of imagining something different and putting time and energy and resources into it is one of the things that you know I feel like L LA is the largest jail system in the world mm -hmm. and there's real work that these organizations are doing here to, to reimagine that. Can you elaborate a little bit on the history of, because what you said really sh struck a chord with me that the system was put in place because there's a population that needs to be controlled, and I don't think people realize that that's kind of the history of what law enforcement is. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? Well, I, I don't know that I'm the best equipped to do it. Somebody else might be <laughs> able anybody, to do it Anybody, anybody want to jump no, in and talk about was, that? I mean, and even I think the first building that w when when... LA was settled, taken over, the first building they built was a jail, mm -hmm. you know? And so just, and we know that the first police forces were specifically sent to keep certain people in certain places at certain time, and it was racist from the beginning. And so this, like I was just thinking when we sat down about the idea of protect and serve feels to me like it's this, it came, I don't know when that sentence was created, but like, it, it seems very much to fit into a very like leave it to beaver time of America, you know, that we're doing this, this thing called deep canvassing, which is where we're actually, it's part of the Reform LA jails, the, the leg of it that we're working on, which is actually to go into predominantly white communities that disproportionately support jails to talk to people about what they think they are and what they think they're for, because we're finding and you know people have these belief systems that have nothing to do with what's actually going on and if we can start to talk to people about why you know the idea is supposed to be public safety but the police are not keeping are not creating public safety and and so what does safety actually look like um, but it takes thinking about how we think about these things without realizing it, you know, these stories that we've bought and been told. I got way off topic. You asked no, about the inception of Everything police. you're saying is great. <laughs> Michelle, yeah. Yeah, I just want to say, this is my personal opinion of how I feel about the, the Sheriff's Department and the Los Angeles Police Department. I feel it's a matter of education and there's a lack of it, a big lack of it. These people go into the academy and they spend usually about three months to six months and that's it. 
people outside in our society have all kinds of addictions nowadays. We have all kinds of mental health uh, disabilities and issues that we deal with. And for a whole agency to believe that they can spend maybe 20 hours a year on, on mental health issue, it's absurd. It's worse than absurd. It's, it's criminal because if you think about it, doctors go to school for years and years and years. My ex-husband is a physician and went to school for at least 15 years and continued to go to school every year thereafter and spend hours and hours and hours, even after a long education. These people go in and they come out into society and they have no skills, no medical training. They're not mental health facilitators and the length of time that they spend trying to learn some of that, it's just not sufficient. And the people that pay for that are black and brown families. In the end, when someone has a mental breakdown, a mental episode, and you have someone in front of you who lacks the education, lacks the training, and has been hired, and possibly, this is, this is nothing against veterans, but they hire a lot of veterans with PTSD, and they come out and they get put in these situations where you have to think at the last minute. And some of these people can't, but yet, they hire over and over and over again, not just veterans, but young people that have no knowledge of what it's like to be out there. Give them training for three to six months and expect them to go out there and be individuals that have the community in mind and their benefit. They don't. It's a lot of posturing. It's a lot of ego and arrogance. And those things need to be addressed. And I believe that they need a lot stronger education. I think that that would be very helpful. So how much does the proliferation of smartphones with cameras in combination with social media as a mainstream platform have to do with our racial atmosphere we have today? And with that, does more, drawing more attention to each incident help or create more tension? I think exposure is great no matter how it comes, as long as it's an honest version of whatever's happening. And I believe we're starting to see what's been going on for decades. Um, we haven't seen that because we didn't have any access to social media or phones. All we had access was to the media, which was TV or radio. And now we've come to see that a lot of the, some of the media was fake. Um, other than that is now the advantage that we have is that we have our own media, our own social network, our own platform to put out there and expose what's really happening out there in reality versus what the media says to us. Do you think it's actually holding law enforcement accountable though now that we're seeing what's happening more and more? I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, Definitely, uh, people are starting to become aware and awake, and that's a good thing. Um, when someone becomes awakened, it takes years to understand what they've been blindfolded from. But um, a beginning of that is great because in the years to come, things will change, and um, hopefully they'll change for more 
you know, for the better, for our future generations to have a better way of living and unity because this whole racism act is still in effect like it was back in the days. It's just a different form. Christina? Yeah, I think, I think it's tricky, right? Because on the one hand, it's obviously moving some people into awareness and action that they weren't otherwise. And yet it's also constantly re-sharing of trauma. And, and that there's a, an element to that that I, you know, is, is troublesome. Is It seems like why does it have to be re-traumatizing people and populations to be able to move folks? It's that, but also I've felt like there's sort of this sense of desensitization with people, like because it's been happening so much and because there's so many videos circulating around Facebook or Instagram, people are like, oh, it's, you know, it's happening again. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's moving people to actually want to have action or if they're just, it's almost become part of a culture now. Same kind of like with school shootings, like I feel like we've become almost desensitized to them. I don't know if you guys feel that way as well. I don't feel that way personally, but I, I just, I think that there's so many things nowadays that have become normal. A black person being shot in the back 34 times is no big deal to someone, you know? I mean, there's just so many things that are normal that we have to look at and say, these things are not normal. It's not normal to um, have a police officer that's involved in three deaths inside the county jails and everyone just bypasses this information and doesn't look at it. I mean, there's just so many new normals that just aren't right. And I think we as people, we have to be the ones to decide those things aren't normal anymore. Instead of sitting back and looking at this uh, stuff and accepting it, we have to say, no, it's not acceptable. And we have to do something about it as an individual, whatever that is, however you can do it, whether it's a phone call, coming in and educating yourself, going on the internet and educating yourself, looking up all these different organizations, speaking to attorneys and asking them what it's like. And I'm, I mean, I can only imagine she must be a plethora of information with regards to um, jury and judges and attorneys. I mean, we have to educate ourselves. It's up to us to do that and not accept what every, everything else is being put out there as normal because these things are not. I also believe that we as a people have forgotten that we hire these folks in the Capitol. Um, you know, people vote for senators, people vote for legislators, and we tend to forget that we need to go to them and bring awareness because somewhere down the line, everything gets hidden and it never really um, gets to them. Um, the reason why I say that is because now that I do a lot of policy reform and a lot of lobbying in the Capitol, I bring situations up to them. They're like, no, we didn't know this was happening. Sometimes I sit there and I think to myself, is he like playing me dumb or like, does he really not know that this is happening out there, you know? And 99% of the time they don't know. They don't know what's going on in the cities. They don't know what's going on inside the prisons. They don't know what's going on inside the county jails. They don't know. And so if we as a people don't bring it to them, how else are they gonna get it? Because a lot of law enforcement agencies are gonna be hiding it. That's their job. They're gonna lose their job if they find out because they're gonna send people down to investigate. So now what we do is we bring awareness, we go and lobby to the Capitol and that's a stronger way of putting your voice out there than to sit here and say, well, what, what are we gonna do? 
we do we do have power. It's just that over the years we have forgotten that we our voices is who matters and they are the reason the reason why they have that job is because of us. Um, Latoya, I'm going to start with you for this question. Um, but do you think that the criminal justice system as a whole ha is infected with institutional racism and not just as in with individual people? Like we've talked about judges and cops and things like that, but the actual like laws that are built into the system, do you think that they have an inherent bias within them? I mean, obviously, I, going back to what you said and just if we look at how this country was founded and how it was started, I'm sorry, but this country was founded on the principles of like kidnapping, slavery, sexual assault, theft, murder. Like these are the things that created the America that we live in. And once we as a country had the things that we needed by using those principles, then we started making those things illegal. So I do think that this entire system was built on a very shaky ground. Um, and I sit here and I'm listening to everyone speak and I'm almost getting overwhelmed because it is like there's so many issues to tackle. Where do we start and how do we start? And I think I've lost track of the question. I have all of these <laughs> no, thoughts. <laughs> okay. It just is there inherent bias built within the system? Okay. And like I was saying, not specifically individuals. Like we know there's racist cops and judges and, and things like that, but just how the actual system was built, like with laws and everything that were written, do you think that there's bias written within those laws? Definitely so. But I think the bias is written in a way to keep people with what they have and to keep the um, undesirables away from them mm -hmm. and what they have. And so really, I think that's what this entire system is about. Anyone else? Yeah, Show? because if you're poor, you have nothing, so you're looking for more, right? If you have money, you look for less, and even if you're gonna get in trouble, it doesn't matter because you'll have money to bail yourself out. And don't get me started on capitalism. I, there's so many things within the system where everybody's making money off the backs of someone that's poor or vulnerable inside the system, it's pretty bad. Especially when you think about 70% of the population inside the LA County jails has a mental health issue. And if you don't have one before you go in, I assure you, you'll have one when you come out. So if you remove that 70% population and you get them the mental health that they need, and you look at what's left, which is gonna wind up being an even smaller percentage of people that actually have felonies and that are violent f offenders. Um, it's a debtor's jail and it was built that way and it'll stay that way until we do something to change it. Yeah, if you um, take a look at what's going on inside the county jails and the state prisons, I'll give you an example. Mental health is a big issue, like she said, and um, everyone, like, high percentage of society thinks, oh, my taxes are going to these prisoners, so, you know, why are they, Why are we gonna support them? Why are we gonna do this? They're just sitting there doing nothing, you know? They're just sitting there watching TV, they don't work. You know, that's my tax money. But in reality, um, there's a bill that we just passed and is sitting in the governor's desk right now. It's called AB 45. And that bill is gonna remove the co-pays that they pay every time they go to the doctor, every time they go to the dentist, every time they need medical care, they pay co-pays in there. And if you don't have that copay in your books, you don't get to eat. You don't get to go to store. You don't get to get hygiene. You don't get nothing. 
and the jobs that you have in there in a state prison, because they pay you about eight pennies to 10 pennies an hour. So on average, you're making 11 to $18 a month, but you still have to pay your copays if you get a cough. If you have a fever, you have to think if you want to go to the doctor or are you going to buy food or if you're going to buy a deodorant or if you're going to buy a toothbrush. You have to make that decision with that little bit of money. Um, if you get sick that you need higher level of care, now there's an ambulance that has to take you to the hospital. Now there's x-rays that you got to get taken. There's all these different fees on top of restitution fines because you have to pay a percentage of a restitution fine if you're working that you have to pay in there before you can get medical care. So there's just so much different um, malinformation going out that it, it frustrates people because then there's no real education on what's really going on in there. So when the injustice has been so long standing and consistently obvious, when do we start looking to different possible sources of the problem? and also different solutions? Well, I have a short answer to that real quick. I mean, we can't wait. We have to do everything in our power now to do whatever, whatever we can. I think that one thing that needs to be um, talked about is the fact that some people end up in the criminal justice system because they really have done something wrong. Um, and as an attorney, I represent lots of clients who really are guilty who really have taken steps to get themselves in the situations that they're in. And so one of the things that I'm really passionate about is like youth development and kind of going into communities at an early age, interacting with children and potential defendants before they reach that point. I think that we need to start doing what we can to prevent ever interacting with police officers as an individual. Like if I lived in a poor community and I know that police are often on these streets, I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and that I'm not having a neg negative interaction with a police officer and I'm not giving a police officer a reason to arrest me. People still get arrested with no reasons, but I just think that we need to be a little bit more accountable and stop playing the victim um, and realizing that there are certain things that we can do both as an individual and as a part of a bigger community to educate, empower, um, broaden the horizons and just help people be the better versions of themselves so that we can do what we can to, to reduce interactions, negative interaction. Christina? I just, I think this goes to what you were saying too about socioeconomic realities and color re realities. I just, I know for myself when I was young and struggling and, you know, making certain choices, I was given the benefit of the doubt in ways that my friends of color were not. And it was because of the color of my skin and it was because I was a middle class white woman. And so, yes, I understand what you're saying about personal responsibility. And I'm also thinking about the fact that there are people who are targeted based on nothing, you know, someone suspect for walking down a street when somebody else is not suspect for that. And so good behavior or not, how do we create community safety and care that is independent of, like, again, like how do we shift this culture that is so embedded in thinking, not even knowing it thinks that there are populations of people who deserve to be suspect. 
I agree with what you're saying completely. Um, and maybe I'm a little bit conservative in my thinking when it comes to this. But there are just certain things that I cannot change. Like, I cannot change the fact that I'm a black woman and you're a white woman. I cannot change the fact that a police officer will look at me and see one thing and look at you and see something else. But I can change my behaviors. Um, I'm trying to find the right words for this. Um, I do not agree that because someone looks a certain way that it's okay that they have to act a certain way to avoid certain things. But I understand that that is the reality. And so I think that people need to say, though it may not be fair and it may not be right, that is the reality. So what can I do to make my situation better? Because there, you know, just certain things we cannot change. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's hard and I feel like she doesn't <laughs> like my answer. I can like <laughs> see it and feel it on her face, but it just is what it is. There are so many things that are not fair. And I think it's Chelsea Handler has done this special and I saw a clip. She's interviewing her high school ex-boyfriend who's a black person. And she's saying that like our lives went two very different ways. He ended up in prison. And she's saying that I've done some of the same things you've done, but because I'm a white woman, I just didn't have the same repercussions that you had. That is a reality in today's society. So what do we do as people, as individuals, as a community to effectively address that? I think the issue, because I, I agree with you, it is unfortunately the reality, it is. But how do we change that so that that's not what the narrative continues to be? Because it is a shame that we have, that as black people, we do have to change how we act. We have to make sure when we see cops, you know, be a certain way, talk a certain way, make sure you, there's con those conversations don't have to happen in a lot of white homes. So what do we have to do to change that narrative? I know it's a big question, but it's an important one. I, I just, okay, so I was listening to your saying, what she was saying, and just trying to put it together with what I've been through, you know? So um, I think it just goes back to the minority communities. Like, we're always going to be uh, targeted because we're the minority communities. The communities were made that way. Um, like, for example, I was arrested when I was 24 years old. I started a criminal life when I was 13 years old. And I got away with it until I was 24 years old, right? Because uh, I'm a smart woman. I did, you know, I still had a job. But, I, you know, at 24 years old, I had two kids, single mom. But the government could not help me because I made $2 more than their qualifications. I, there was days where I couldn't feed my kids. How am I going to pay the light bill? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to pay all this stuff, right? So I had to go do what I had to do because I don't have a very supportive family. So I started selling drugs. I started doing things that I had to do on the side to support my children. So it was done out of survival. It wasn't done because, hey, I just want to have some extra money and I'm just going to go do this because I don't think I feel like getting arrested today. So... At the age of 24, I get arrested. First time offense. And I end up getting this huge criminal conviction on this, you know, arrest. I wasn't trying to get arrested, but I had no choice. I had to do what I had to do to survive for my kids. 
I walked out of that. I was facing 70,000 barriers, like any single, any person that comes out of jail or prison. Now we have like over 70,000 barriers we have to face. I overcame that. 2012, I went to court and I got my record sponged. I became a nurse at the age of 18. I started my medical career and all that process, I became a nurse for Kaiser Permanente. So now, fast forward to 2019, I've been in the medical field for 22 years now, and I just retired three weeks ago from the medical field. I felt in my heart that I needed to come back where I was suffering and where I was hurting because I could have easily forgotten of what I've been through. I could have easily forgotten of the people that are suffering, and I could have easily went on with my life. I traveled all over the world. Despite of the fact that immigration will pull me over every time I would come into the United States and keep me in a room for hours until the DOJ cleared me to come back into the United States because of my criminal record. Unfortunately, it's a federal record as well. So for the rest of my life, I have to go through that. So those are barriers that we have to bear, um, carry on. I could have went on with my life and forgot about all this. But no, my heart told me to come back. So now I'm here full time to help those that are, in, that are in my shoes where I was in once and say, you can do it. You can overcome all this. It's not going to be easy, but it can be done. And I'm saying it because I'm one of them. So on top of all that, that's the way we change as people. That doesn't mean that police officers and law enforcement and political-wise that they're going to change. But we have to beat them at their own game. We have to know the law to shake the law. So if we don't do that the right way, they're going to say, look, they're still animals. They're still criminals. They don't know what they're doing. They're going to always use that against us. And that's something that we have to live by every single day. Every day of my life, I have to wake up for the rest of my life and say, hey, Maria, are you going to do the right thing today? Or are you going to go back to your old life? I can't go to a regular party and, and be there and um, say, God forbid, something happens there. There's a murder. Now my cup is there with my lipstick on it because I'm on the FBI files. They took my DNA when I got in trouble. So those are, those are barriers that we're always going to have to live for the rest of our lives. So if, the, if society doesn't change, if the laws don't change, if the educational process doesn't change, if we don't make things better for our future generation, it's just always going to be like this. We have to break that chain. And it has to come from all of us. Can't be blaming each other. Now, education and opportunity is really important. Um, I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. And not everybody that's in jail is guilty. There are a lot of people, and I know that. I work with them. I've been inside. And I can assure you that opportunity is not the same for everyone. And it most definitely is not the same for people of color, black and brown. It just isn't. And so opportunity is, is huge. When you're inside and you have nothing going on, and the Sheriff's Department, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department has an inmate welfare fund that they could be taking millions of dollars and putting classes and making people more educated so that when they come out, 
they have opportunity. But instead, we'd rather keep them down. Capitalism is growing at its best inside our jail system because everybody's making money off a commissary because we eat shitty food inside, and so we have to spend our own money that we don't have or have our families come in and put that money in. You wanna make a phone call? That'll cost you a lot of money, probably $20, $30 to talk maybe for five minutes if you're lucky. So opportunity is, it's not the same for everyone. It isn't. And so if we take some of the money, instead of keeping it and hoarding it for ourselves, buying $60,000, $100,000 brand new go gold belt buckles for the sheriff's department instead of educating the very people that they don't that they complain that they don't want to come back you don't want them to come back then use the money that you are stealing from that you're making money off the backs of people and start using it to educate people so that when we come when we come out we have opportunity and we'll be our best person that we can be I'm going to send Carmel out into the audience for a second and we can get some questions. And I have one question for you guys before we go to the audience. I wanted to add something oh, yeah. really quick absolutely, to that. Absolutely. She's so right. I got to piggyback off for you. Um, just to let you know, the CDCR, the state of California prison system, gets $11.8 billion a year. And the prisons are falling apart. When it floods in there, there's water coming out of the electrical sockets. There's water coming out of concrete, but yet they say they have no money. Um, when, my husband's incarcerated, so when I go visit him, I gotta take close to $100 just to feed him in there. They only let me take $50 in. The food that you buy at the 99 cent store, it's an average eight to 12 to $16 in there per little thing. So all of that money, they're using it, they're keeping it, and on top of that, they get $11.8 billion of your taxes, of our taxes. And they want to complain that they don't have no money. So my question is, where is that money going? I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm going to start with Christine, and we'll just work our way down. Um, what do you feel the primary purpose of jail is supposed to be and should be? I don't know that I think there is a primary purpose for jail and prison. Because well, some I people believe come, some people would say rehabilitation, but there's really not opportunity for that, even that, for some I, people. I feel like the idea of rehabilitation is something that has been infused into the idea of what jails and prisons is supposed to be. But again, when we go back to what the inception of it was, I don't think rehabilitation was a part of it, and it's certainly not really a part of it now. Right, right. right. Um, but. You know, what I will say is that I feel like I want, I want to know what accountability looks like for harm done, and I want to know what restoration looks like for dignity and human relationship and potential. And, but I, I, don't, I have yet to see where I think that works within prison and, and jails. Um, yeah. um, <clears throat> what was the question again? Just the primary purpose of jail. What is okay. it supposed to be or should be? So the primary uh, purpose would be to, ha you know, hold accountable to those that really do commit true crimes. 
Because there is evil people out there. Sure. There is people that do commit crimes out there that deserve to do time in prison. But um, there is thousands and thousands of them in there that are being abused of their freedom. Um, there's no educational system in there. There is no rehabilitation system in there. I don't even know why they put an R behind CDCR because there's no re rehabilitation in there. If we start to implement programs, mental health programs, rehabilitation as far as even getting your GED, like it takes years for you to just to get your GED done because they only have one program in one prison and in the prison they have thousands of people in there. So if we start putting that and giving the appropriate time, because we have people in there that are serving life in prison for stealing a pack of gum because the president decided to do the three strike law. I mean, people are, you know, are in there doing life because they sold marijuana. Marijuana's legal now and it can't even be retroactive to these people. So these people, how would you feel if you were doing life knowing the marijuana is like a cigarette now and you can't do anything about it? So there's just, we need to fix that. The, the maximum time needs to be fixed. I'm sorry. I do feel as though um, prison started as a way to punish people, detain people, remove, um, like I said before, undesirables from the community. Mm -hmm. I think that the word rehabilitation, the idea of rehabilitation is something that was later added. Like I said, I practice out of Texas, so my experience is with Texas, so I can say that in a lot of our jails, we do have programs, educational programs. Um, the new DA in Dallas County is very mental illness focused um, and drug rehabilitation focused. And so there really is an effort to try to get people help. Whether that help is effective is a different question, but there are at least efforts out there. Um, generally speaking, I think that the prison system nationwide should move towards rehabilitation because that should be the goal, to help people um, to give them the resources that they need to be better and to come out as productive members of society. I also agree that prison sentences are entirely too long. I mean, this encompasses so many of the things that we've talked about, but there was a police officer in Dallas County that shot and killed a 15-year-old. Um, the 15-year-old was in the car with his brother. They were leaving a high school party. The police officer said that the car was driving towards him the video camera showed that the car was driving away from him. He shot into the car, killed a 15-year-old. Sorry, this still makes me emotional. And the brother was driving that car. And I just put myself in that situation um, of being the driver of a vehicle where my sister or brother was killed. The police officer was charged. He was convicted, um, but he got 15 years in prison. And in Texas, he has to do half of the time before he's eligible for parole. So that means that he could be out of prison in seven and a half years for shooting and killing a 15-year-old. But we have people serving 20 years, 25 years, 30 years life sentences for selling drugs. So I do think that, generally speaking, the entire criminal justice system needs to be overhauled. Laws need to be enacted to actually fit the crime dime. Laws need to be um, applied evenly. Mm -hmm. And 
we need to be focused on changing people for the better and giving them the resources and the things they need to be able to come out and be better members of society so that we can have stories like this one and this one where they come out and they say that they are survivors, they've changed their lives, and they're now giving back to the community. Michelle? Um, my opinion may, people might not agree with this, but I come from having 35 years in the medical field and after watching my ex-husband go to medical school and learning all about the brain and um, neuro doctors, they say they don't even know about the brain. I feel as though a good percentage of the people that are inside the jails don't belong there. And maybe what we need are more mental health facilities and places for people to go who have addictions. And then from there, they should have the resources and um, be given the opportunity for a new education, uh, whether it's a degree or a short-term working on something that um, they would be able to go out and be something like a mechanic, whatever. I think that, again, it goes back to opportunity. And I just don't, I feel as though there's so many of us that, that judge people that are inside. And if, if medical doctors don't know about someone's mental capacity, it can't be normal for someone to shoot somebody or kill someone or stab someone in the back because I don't think anyone here in this room has probably ever done that, or hopefully you haven't. So if you have a mental health disability, do you really belong inside? If you can't think what the rest of us would be normally to go out and, and not hurt someone and injure someone, there has to be something inside your head that isn't right. So I feel like if we had less of a jail and, and maybe a place for people to go who are extremely violent, but even then, I, I think it goes back to someone's mental capacity, and I think that there's a difference between a jail and a mental health facility where people can get help, because obviously our jails don't do that. All right, we have questions from the audience now, if anyone, yeah. So, uh, Latoya, I appreciate you bringing up Chelsea Handler, because that is a good special to watch. If you uh, don't know, it's on Netflix. Uh, talks about her white privilege. Uh, and I appreciated it. Um, I th uh, personally, I feel that the system in which we all live, regardless of the jail system, has to be reformed entirely. I'm gonna give you a quick story of what occurred to me is I had my prescription sunglasses stolen when I was at Bank of America. And I wanted to see the footage so I could say, well, that's the person that stole them. You know, I just, all I wanted is to have them back. They forced me to go to the police department to fill out a form so that a detective would get involved. And so then suddenly I'm now involved with the police trying to get my prescription sunglasses back. Uh, but what I told the detective, and this is where ownership has to come in as well, of if this person is caught, I don't want them going to jail. What I want them to do is either return my sunglasses or they make retribution by coming to this church and doing community service, and that I work with them one-on-one -on, -one on the choice that they made so that we can talk about the consequences. 
I think a lot of that is lacking within our system itself. Now, Christine, I look at you and you got Reform LA County Jails on there. I don't know if you've heard about Homeboy Industries in which I'm a big fan of Father Boyle and he believes in second chances. What can we do as a church? Because everything that all of you have shared is overwhelming, right? If we as a church community go, oh, we're going to tackle this. Let's do reform, right? Reform the county jails. Well, <laughs> I guess we'll be doing that for a long time, right? Christine, what's one thing that as a faith community that we can do in this? Because I do believe in rehabilitation, and I do believe it is lacking. But what's one thing that we could just focus on and put our energy toward as a church community? I feel like this is a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I just think there are so many places that you could go with that answer, or that question, and I think there are so many things that you brought up, you know? Um, I think, I mean, first of all, I just, in like the short time that we have to answer, I feel compelled to like say, I. I would say look into the work that places like Initiate Justice and Dignity and Power Now are doing. There's, there's ongoing work that people can become involved in and support that's happening in this community, that's affecting members of this community. Um, Justice LA, there's, there, there are lots of, there's lots of work going on. Um, Initiate Justice has brought forward ACA 6, which is going to return voting rights to felons um, that will be on the, that's November 2020 ballot. Yes, it'll be in the November 2020 ballot. The Reform LA Jails Initiative is going to be on the March 3rd ballot, um, which is going to investigate, create a report that is investigating alternatives to incarceration. So it's looking at what it could actually look like if we put some money into pre-law uh, intervention things um, and it also is giving subpoena power to the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Commission because as a lot of what Michelle was talking about there's extraordinary things taking place inside the jails and there's no recourse to find out what's going on people are dying and there's no recourse to find out what's going on so those are two policy things that are actually going to affect people's lives um, and, and, and the work going into those pieces of policy are, is and, and it, more than just those pieces of policy, though, there's ongoing work. So I would say that the other thing I wanted to say, you know, you mentioned the Chelsea Handler thing. I think, I know for myself, it's a constant investigation into what my personal stake is in this work. Mm. And that's different for everybody. Um, and if and I'll just speak as a white person to white people, if that's of interest to you, I would say you could check out White People for Black Lives. Chelsea Handler talks about it in, in her um, documentary. Um, you know, and how we can, like we're all talking about here, how can we start thinking in broader reimaginative terms about this system that we're all a part of? And how can we sometimes, where can we move from being passively participant in it to being actively, um, trying to do something about what we're talking about in terms of providing care for the people in, in our community. 
I hope I answered that question in some way. That's good. Yes, and please feel free to come to our organization. We're more than happy to help you um, advocate for someone. There's always someone that needs some type of advocating for, be it uh, support for a class, be it support for um, seeing attorneys and having someone present because there are a lot of young people that don't know anything about attorneys or anything like that. It's always good just to, just to be a support for someone along the way, whatever it is. Carmel's right behind you, if you need the mic. Oh. <laughs> Y'all can't hear me. <laughs> um, one, I want to touch on a couple things that were said. Number one, about um, in this day uh, and age of um, video cams, mm -hmm. of body cams. But one thing that wasn't mentioned, uh, we touched briefly on it about how the criminal justice and police departments have a tendency to shy away from things like that. But what's what hasn't really been mentioned or I haven't heard was the good old boy network. How is it that a black man or a brown man or a, any person of color can run away with his hands in the air, not holding any weapon, and still get shot? And this police officer gets, gets, um, gets away with it because of whatever. It was on the cell phone. How about the, 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 the man that in, in New York that was rustled to the ground for selling unpackaged cigarettes and ultimately died? Nothing was done for, what, a year or two or three? And then finally someone was held accountable. But this is a good old, this is a good old boy network. How about these body cams that are mysteriously not working that day? This, this, this good old boy network in, within the police department, and I don't want to um, denigate at all um, police departments because they're fine men and women in the police departments, but there's, there's institutional racism right there. Mm -hmm. there's the, you get a person like Mark Furman way back when that, that was even in the, the police department when it was, he was an avowed racist. And you have people, there's, there's a vetting system in this little period of six months that we were talking about, of all their, you know, all their training that they get within six months. There's a vetting process there that's not really good because they need to vet these people out. Although it's really kind of hard sometimes because you can, you can talk your way, you know, girl, I can talk my way through just about anything. <laughs> but what I'm saying is a lot of good work is not being, uh, is, is being torn down because of the good old boy network. What can we do about that? Go for it. Yeah. One of the problems is there's this horrible, horrible thing called the Peace Officers Bill of Rights. And it's this huge umbrella. If you want to talk about the good old boys club, this is all part of it. It's, it has to do with the Peace Officers Bill of Rights. It makes it very difficult to go after and prosecute. I, I'm not, I don't know about Texas, but here in California, it is very, very difficult. That's something that our organization, along with the ACLU and, and all the other ones that are sitting up here in front, we're trying to change that. But it, it takes, it takes a, a, a lot, and that's an understatement, in order to try to change that. One of the things that we recently did was um, we pushed for the uh, police officer's misconduct bill so that we would be able to see an officer who, his personnel records, to see if they had done, uh, you know, several um, uh, things that could be, you know, uh, disturbing, right? And I can tell you it is. And let me just say this. One of the things that I'm working on right now is the LA County Coroner's Office. The LA County Coroner's Office, like the Sheriff's Department, is the largest coroner in the, in the states, okay? And um, one of the things that they, that they do is they contribute 
to allowing the sheriffs to win by default when, um, when they write their autopsy reports. And so um, they contribute to that, and I'm trying to make a change with that right now. I've gone to the county coroner and I told them that you, you're allowing the sheriff's department to win by, by default. There could be seven, eight, 10 hours worth of, of missing this person's life at the end of their life, and the sheriff's department controls all those hours, and then by the time they decide after they've done everything, which is they've set up scenes to make them look as though um, people have have committed suicide, and, and they're not true. And I'm, I'm speaking to you from experience. I have 100 autopsy reports that are sitting on my desk right now, and there are officers, m multiple officers that are involved in more than one death. And yet nobody's done anything about that. And part of that has to do with the Police Officers' Bill of Rights and how they're covered under the umbrella in terms of being accountable and transparent with the things that they're doing criminally. Well, it passed, but what's happened is um, the Sheriff's Department has huge union, ALADS. They have a lot of money. And I've been to, I've been, I've done the lobbying up in Sacramento to do these bills and I've watched them come in. And the, these departments don't even show up. They just have so much money. They'll send an attorney, they'll pay an attorney to go in and oppose whatever the bill is. And so even though the bill passed, they've put the brakes on it in court where um, uh, they're still holding it and they're still fighting in court. Now some, some people, I think Orange County and there are some other uh, cities or counties that have released some of those, those records to show um, in officers, uh, personnel records, but in LA County, they haven't done that yet. Well, if you got a lot of hours, I got a lot of information <laughs> for you. I just wanted to add one thing to that about the, you know, there are lots of different ways to go about growing change and the work that Justice LA, of which both of these organizations are, are part of, um, as is White People for Black Lives and the ACLU, has been doing over just talking about the recent jail expansion plan for the last 13 years. You know, it's, it's these organizations and the community that has moved what has now shifted around the jail expansion plan. And it happened by going to the people, by getting the people of LA County involved, right? The Board of Supervisors is five people, but LA County is 10 million people. So the more people who take it upon themselves to learn about what's going on in these institutions, and as uh, Maria said, you know, what we're paying for, whatever it is that motivates you to learn about it, you know, we're a much bigger body of people than the elected officials. Yeah, and um, speaking of, you know, reform, for like example, um, the ACA6, um, that's actually an amendment to the Constitution. So we're doing really good. Um, when it first started, we wanted to do it off of, you know, signatures for the people, but they wanted us to get, I believe, more than a million signatures. So we made it to like 650,000 signatures. So the reason, that's the reason why we had to go through legislation. Um, it passed the legislation and now we're getting ready. We're sitting on the Senator's desk. Um, it just goes to show how much barriers they put on us even just to be able to make something better. If um, ACA6 passes to the ballot in November 2020, we have to pay about 
between three to five million dollars just to put it on the ballot initiative. So right now we're raising money for that. We're coming out to get signatures, you know, uh, educating the communities. If there's events, we come out and table and educate people that, you know, these are 50,000 people in California that are not allowed to vote because they're on parole. But yet they were released from prison because they're no longer a threat to society. They get a job, they pay their taxes, they live like any normal person in society, but they don't have the right to use their voice. So that's one, uh, those are barriers that we face. It all comes down to money. Like if we don't pay this much, you can't get on the ballot. I don't care if you passed it through the Senate, you still need, you know, we're leaving it up to the people to vote yes on ACA 6. But in order for us to put it there, we gotta come up with three to five million dollars just to put it on the ballot. We have time for one more question, anyone? Yes. Do you think that um, public schools within the inner cities and uh, neighborhoods that are socially and economically challenged have become a funnel of sorts for the uh, justice system? Yes, because I, our government doesn't um, do well at education and history for our students. I think that if they did a better job, that that would be a great start, for sure. They also, and somebody may be able to speak more specifically to this, uh, they, jail plans are made based on the test scores of third graders. So students not doing well is like a huge indicator of what is making people vote for and invest in building more jails. Yeah, it's called uh, school to prison pipeline. So um, what it is is uh, it's already set up that way. It's already set up for children that are being raised in minority communities in poverty to end up in there. That's their mentality when they build that. Um, I have a youth at risk child. Uh, he's 17 years old. And just recently he got arrested. And I'm thinking, how can you get arrested? I'm over here doing all this work and you got arrested. <laughs> like, right? So he, he got arrested for having marijuana, a possession of marijuana in the school grounds. So here comes the principal and tells me, oh, your son got arrested. You need to go to the police department. He's going to do a long time in jail. He's not coming back. And I'm like, what did he do did he, that is so, you know, dangerously, like, not coming back? So I, long story short, I go get him, and they gave him to me. And so I sat there and talked with him, and, you know, I gave him the whole mom-son thing. But when I went to the school board, they were already set, done, decided, not even a choice, that my son was gonna be expulsion from school, from the whole district, that he can only go to one of those schools that for criminal kids. And um, the, the, the officer of the school had evidence pictures that he was selling marijuana in the school. I mean, they had this whole platform set up for him. And I'm sitting there just taking it all in quietly, you know, just, just thinking, you guys are full of crap, right? Like, this is nonsense. Like, I got to see it with my own eyes, how the school system works. 
So finally, one of the principals tells my son, Jacob, Jacob, I'm your advocate. I'm going to advocate for you. And he goes, what does that mean? So Jacob, he tells him, well, I'm going to make sure that the officers don't mistreat you, that the school rules are being played fair for you, that nobody's trying to take advantage of your rights, da-da-da. And he, go, he turns to me and he goes, oh, mom, like what you do for people that are in prison. <laughs> so they all looked at me like, you've been fooling us. You've been sitting here allowing us to pump fear into you, but you literally were laughing inside because... Now we know that you, this is what you do, you know. So I said, yes, son. And I told him, there is no way that my son's going to get criminalized by having what's so-called a cigarette nowadays. I don't condone him using marijuana. But this whole setup you have right here, it's absurd. You know, I, and I honestly told him, I don't even want my son coming to your school. This is what you guys do to your children. You don't give them a chance. You treat them like criminals at a young age instead of helping them. So this is why people end up in jails, in juvenile halls, in prison, because there's no chance from the start. So there is a movement right now called uh, Closing the School to Prison Pipeline that you guys can definitely um, get involved with as well. I just want to quickly tell this story because it kind of encompasses everything that we've been talking about. Once again in Texas, um, worked out at this gym. There was a woman whose son got arrested for, I think, selling drugs on campus. She was a white woman. The child was white. Um, she talked to me and wanted to know my advice on the situation. But the next time I spoke to her, she told me that it wasn't a big deal because they had worked it out. She didn't even need a lawyer. Um, that the detective had talked to the principal. Sorry. I'm like <laughs> having two phones. Um, the detective had talked to the principal. They had brought the parent and the child in, and they decided in-house what they were going to do. There was no courts. There was no your child's being expelled. I think that maybe they decided they would put him on a deferred probation, which meant that he would have no criminal record. But it just goes to show the inherent biases and racism and differences that her child faced the situation he faced for maybe just merely possession, and this white child who was selling drugs on campus maybe got a slap on the wrist that involved no one else. Oh, and by the way, I got charged for that too, so I have to go to court with my son. Yes, they cited me for possession of marijuana uh, under a minor, so we're just waiting to go to court. So I'm actually charged too, and I'm like, great. How does that work? <laughs> well, I want to thank you all so much for being here. It was very informative. Can you please give a hand for our panelists? Michelle, LaToya, Maria, and Christina. And if, you, if anyone has any questions, can they talk with you afterwards? Great. All right. Thank you so much, you guys, for coming. Thank, thank you. you for the opportunity. Of course. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Need to Talk the Podcast and Twitter at underscore We Need to Talk underscore. <laughs>